So as we begin reading in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews in verse 18, it says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I remember when we moved here and, and started doing some hunting out in the woods and it kind of stuck to the paths for the most part, but there were a few times where I thought, boy, if I could just get back in there into the thicker stuff, maybe. But you know what? I started walking through that brush, and you look down to see where you're stepping, and you're pushing things out of your way to get through, and pretty soon you look up and you think, am I still going the way I was to start with? And I tried doing that thing where you pick something way off in the distance and just keep heading toward that, and pretty soon it looks a lot like the other things off in the distance. And I thought, boy, this is, I know this chunk of woods isn't very big, but I'm not even sure which way to go. After that, I went and got a compass that I could keep in my pocket to kind of give me some bearings. In a lot of places like that, uh, even shopping malls and things like that, they have things there for you to kind of get your bearings and to know where you're, where you're going or where you need to go and, and where you are. I, I kind of punched in to get some examples of it to put up on the screen for us online as we think about those things. And, and the first one I came across with wasn't overly helpful. Um, it was, <laughs> as it's a picture showing us where the, uh, where the earth sits in the galaxy. And I think I got that one down. That didn't seem overly helpful. This next one seems helpful to me on many different occasions. I don't particularly enjoy shopping malls, but I have used the boards on a number of occasions because that you are here thing and you point to the map and then you got to find where the bathrooms are on that map. That's, that's helpful. And then, of course, you know, anymore, obviously the, the easiest example would probably be on our, our cell phones. We've got Google Maps and, and Apple Maps and all these different apps that we can use. To Just the other day I was driving through the cities, and I knew I was following the directions right, but I was on a kind of a back road and waving around, and, and finally I thought, you know what, I know I'm going the right way. I know I'm coming up on the highway pretty soon, but it would be kind of nice to see a picture of where I'm at to get a better understanding. Well, this is not a picture of that. This actually, uh, Glenn, it should dawn on you any minute. This is the path he follows to get to church every week. I was going to say that 29.8 miles is probably locked in, but you'd have to ask Cindy on the, on the time. <laughs> so, but, you know, sometimes it's that way in life, too. Sometimes life can get a little get, 
confusing. You feel like you get turned around a little bit. And uh, you just need, a, you need to get your perspective. You need to get your bearings. Well, that's exactly what we're looking at when we come to the book of Hebrews at this point. Is we're looking at a group of people that need some perspective. They're getting confused. They've looked all the, forward all their life to the Messiah coming. He's come. They accepted Him. And they're being persecuted for it. And they're going through struggles. And they're having a hard time with that. And so they're in need of some perspective. And that's what he's been giving them, really through the whole book of Hebrews. But as we come to to chapter 12, that's what I find really kind of the focus is, is the perspective that they need to have. As they compare these things that he's been giving them to, to compare, they need to get a better perspective of where they're at and where they need to be going. You know, in our lives it's the same way. There's a whole myriad of things always begging for our attention, and sometimes we just need to put things back in perspective. We need to recognize the things that are truly important in our lives, recognize the things that that we need to spend the the greater amounts of time on, recognize the things that are maybe just entertainment or maybe even just foolishness. And we need a better perspective. Well, that's what I'm hoping that we gain as we look through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. The first area that he deals with in helping us to gain this perspective is with a comparison. He gives them a comparison of the old system that they had before and the new. Now, he's been going through a lot of details of that stuff up till now. He's not doing that now. He just kind of gives us a list. And the first thing that we need to do as we get our perspective in order is we need to understand that comparison that he gives to us. And so we're just going to kind of walk through that as we look in this passage. As we just kind of take the elements of the, of the, the old versus the new. He's basically comparing two mountains. You have Mount Sinai and you have Mount Zion. He does mention Mount Zion by name, but Mount Sinai, he just describes the experience. And if you'll remember with me, Mount Sinai is the mountain that Moses went up on to be with God to get the law. And then he comes down off the mountain and he finds that Israel is worshiping a golden calf. And he goes back up on the mountain and he spends time before God again, and part of it, begging God not to destroy the Israelites. It was an amazing experience. He compares that experience of the giving of the law to our experience and what we have in Christ. If we look at the old, what do we find? Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a trumpet sound, and a voice that instilled fear. In fact, it instilled so much fear that even even Moses, even Moses said, I tremble and shake. I tremble with fear. And he was the one person that was allowed on the mountain. You know, the rest of them weren't even allowed. They had to put a barrier around the bottom of the mountain. God said, if anybody approaches this mountain, if anybody, even an animal touches this mountain, it's to be put to death. And so we really have this kind of eerie experience. And then when we look at the whole list on the other side, well, what do we find? We find the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's referring, obviously, to the same thing. When you look at Zion, Zion first shows up in the Old Testament as an area where King David kind of conquered and took over. And then it becomes the site for Jerusalem, the the holy city. And it's used throughout the Bible as kind of a reference to Jerusalem, but also a reference to heaven. It's used in, in the Bible to point forward to our heavenly home and when we get to finally be with Christ forever. And so it's used in that sense. And that's why he calls it the city of God and a heavenly Jerusalem. Innumerable angels and festal gathering, assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, God the judge of all, spirits of the righteous made perfect, Jesus mediator of a new covenant and sprinkled blood that speaks better than it, blood of Abel. The Bible says that Abel, even though dead, still speaks. Why? Because he offered the acceptable sacrifice. Well, what that's saying is that Jesus is even more 
acceptable than Abel's, even better sacrifice than Abel's acceptable sacrifice through his own blood. Now as we look at those things and kind of uh, couple them together a little bit now to get a better understanding of them, the first thing that we see is these things are compared is that one, one is temporary and the other one is eternal. You're not coming to that Mount Sinai like Moses did. And the very first thing that he points out about it, he says, they were commanded not to touch it, but it was just a physical mountain that you could touch. In other words, it's a temporal thing. And he's saying, look, you're not, you're not coming to a temporal mountain here. As you come to Christ, you're not coming to a temporal or a, a short-lived event. You're coming to the city of the living God. And I think back to Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about all the people of faith and it categorizes them this way. It says these are all people that longed for a new city, that longed for a new country. Remember that's whose, whose builder and maker was God. And so they weren't, they weren't just content with the world that they have now, but they recognized my real home, where I'm going to spend eternity, where I'm going to spend the majority by far of my time, is somewhere else. It's with God. And that's why they didn't look back. That's why they didn't go to their old lifestyle. That's why they didn't turn their back on God. Because they were looking forward. They were looking forward to what God had for them. To a city and a country that was eternal. Not temporal. You know, the Bible encourages us with that often. I think of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, we do not lose heart. He's talking about the afflictions and the struggles, the sufferings that he is going through. And he said, we don't, we don't lose heart. Just like the Hebrews. These people were going through sufferings and afflictions. Persecutions. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's an amazing statement when you think about it. He's saying, when my, when my physical life is wasting away, inside, I feel new. How does that happen? Obviously, his hopes are set on something more than that temporary experience that he has on this earth. He's looking forward. In fact, the Apostle Paul often speaks of that day being the day when he gets to be before Christ. And when he writes to the Philippians, he would tell them, you know what, I'm kind of torn between the two and what I'd rather do. Because he was sitting in prison and not knowing whether he's going to be put to death or be let out. And he says, I'm not sure which I would pick if it was my choice. Because on the one hand, for me to depart and be with Christ, boy, that's better by far, he said. But I know that it's needful for you for me to still be here, so I'm convinced that God's probably going to leave me down here to, to help you guys out. And so I'm content to do that. How does he do that? Outward wasting away, but renewed on the inside? It's because he knows this isn't all there is. He knows this isn't all there is. This is just the tip of his existence. So then he goes on, he says, For this light momentary affliction, his affliction was anything but light and momentary. He was stoned three different times and left for dead, but lived through it. The Jews had a 40 minus 1 beating. that they, they weren't allowed to beat you more than 40 times, so they beat you 39 just in case they miscount. All right? But he had, he had experienced that five times. He'd been beaten with rods, he said, more times than he could remember. When you look at the list of his suffering, it is not light. And it is not momentary. Unless you have his perspective. His perspective is eternity. He says, this suffering that I've gone through, no big deal. It's short-lived, and I can handle it. In the book of Philippians, and you get up to chapter 3, he looked at it as an opportunity. He said he would like to know Christ greater, and he listed a few different things. One of them was the power of his resurrection. I think we all would chime in with him with that. Love to know the power of his resurrection. That feels good. But the fellowship of his suffering. The Apostle Paul said, if it means I get to know Christ better, I'll suffer for that. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. From his perspective, he's saying, I know something about my God. I know that my God is a rewarding God. And he knows that whatever he experiences in the way to suffering down here is light and momentary compared to the glories that are going to be revealed in him when he gets to be before God. And he says, these things are accomplishing for me. He knows that because of his suffering, he's go- that's going to bring him more glory before Christ. If you're suffering for Christ, any suffering that you experience for Christ, God's not going to let that go un- unrewarded, unnoticed. And what you'll get to experience on- in heaven or in, the- in eternity is so much greater and so much longer than anything that you could suffer here. That's what our focus is supposed to be on. The things that we see, they're temporary. They're fading away. They're momentary. The things that we don't see, the heavenly city, Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem, the things that we don't see or at least don't see yet, those things are eternal. In Matthew in chapter 6, he said, build up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. They don't last on earth. They last in heaven. It just, it just makes sense. And so, you know what, we were explaining to the kids this week in one of, our, one of our children's ministries. They asked about God and where did He come from. And we talked about God's eternal nature. God doesn't have a where did He come from. When we open up the Bible at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God. You know, he was already there. John 1.1, 1, 1, same thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was already there. He is the self-existent One. But I went on to tell the kids, I said, we're a little bit different. We're not eternal in the past, but we're going to have an eternity of a future. God doesn't have a beginning or an end. We have a beginning but no end. We will spend eternity somewhere. For Jesus and Paul, as they instructed us, that's what they focused on. Was look, your life is so much bigger than what you're thinking about is your life. Recognize it as that. Live like it is that. Christianity is future-oriented. It's eternity Oriented. Sometimes we can we can miss that. We live in a place where we're pretty protected. We're pretty comfortable. We have a freedom of religion that we can that we can exercise here. Other places around the world don't have that, but we do. So that's our experience. So we kind of get lulled to sleep in that sometimes. We can begin starting to think that Christianity is about our experience here and God making our 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 experience better here, making our life better here. It's not about that. It's about God redeeming us from the lost condition that this world is in and preparing us for a future in His eternity. It's not about making your day go smoother as you're trying to run all your errands and take care of your business and get a good parking spot and all those different things. It's really not about that. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us in some of those ways along the way, but you know what it's really about? Enduring in our faith for Jesus Christ here as as God disciplines us and prepares us for our future with Him. Ours is eternal the old system was temporary. The old one, as we look at it, is gloomy. is dark and is gloomy and is foreboding. You know what I almost made for my point? And it's creepy is what I almost put on there. It's just kind of haunted house-ish. It's just kind of creepy. There's a big cloud descended, darkness, gloominess descended on the mountain. Nobody touched the mountain or you die. Not even an animal can touch the mountain. Keep you shut out. It's gloomy. And he says, but what are we coming to? Thousands of angels in a festal gathering. Can you imagine what kind of party does that got to be like? 
What do thousands of angels in a festival, a party type of a gathering, what, what kind of an experience is that? That's got to be phenomenal. When we were singing here earlier and we sang um, I Exalt Thee without the piano and you can just hear all the voices, you know, it reminded me of something. It reminded me of another time where I was at a thing called Basic Youth Institutes out in uh, Seattle and they had it in the Coliseum. And so you're in this huge dome I don't know, thousands of people in there, and we sang some songs, a cappella in there, and you could just hear all these voices. It was just powerful. It was just awesome. I think that's the tip of the iceberg when you get to these angels in this festival gathering. That has got to be one, some kind of an experience, doesn't it? Not only that, all all these thousands of angels in this festival gathering, but you have all the firstborn there, and that's referring to us. That's that's talking about people that have come to Christ, and we get the rights of firstborn children under God. We get the blessing of the firstborn. And so we're His family gathered there. So now you're picturing this gathering with all these angels and all these people that have been redeemed from off the earth. Man, what a celebration is that going to be? Holy cow, I don't think we've ever experienced anything close yet. And he says, that's what you get. You see, these people are getting caught up in what they're losing. These people are getting caught up in the fact that my house has been taken or my dad's in prison or my, you know, these different things. I've been made fun of and mocked publicly in some suffering, which is real suffering that they're going to. I don't want to diminish that. But you know what? Compared to what they get in Jesus Christ, that stuff just is diminished. It just, like in the Apostle Paul's life, it just doesn't measure up. It's light and momentary. Look at what we get to experience forever. In this enormous festal gathering, it's going to be awesome. So in the Old Covenant, with the Mosaic Covenant, and as glorious as that was, Moses was the only one that got to experience it. He came down off the mount radiating the glory of God. And you know what the people did? They said, oh, cover it up. Cover it up. It scares me. You're creeping me out. And so when you look at that, that brings us to kind of the last point of it. The last point is fear versus acceptance. See, the whole thing with the Mosaic Law was nobody can go up there. Only Moses could go up there. God says, put a barrier there so no, not even an animal is going to touch the mountain. Nobody touches the mountain. Nobody can go up and just access God. But that's very different from what we have in Christ. We have Christ as our mediator that brings us into God. We, if you go back to the end of chapter 4, come boldly before the throne of grace. We have complete acceptance because of what Christ did for us through His blood, which is more acceptable, better than the blood of Abel, or the sacrifice of Abel, which was also acceptable. But we have this access, we have this acceptance before God. The only thing that throws you off a little bit in thinking about that is the fact where it talks about God, the judge of all. You know, I even kind of wondered at that when I look at that. I think, why did he put that statement there? It's in the midst of all these statements that show acceptance. Our being able to come before God and not only being accepted, but celebrated with this festal gathering. But it it mentions him being the judge of all. I think the point is, is we're not getting snuck in the back door. Even before God, as our judge, we're accepted because our debt's been paid. It's not like we're sneaking in or sliding in under anything or just going unnoticed. Sometimes the world can make you feel like an outcast, like you're not wanted. That's what these Christians were feeling. Our faith causes a separation between us and the world. And the world despises that separation. And so it often tries to persecute. It often tries to belittle or demean people that are different from them. And so these people were going through a time where they were looked at as unwanted. They were being separated from. They were being publicly humiliated. They were being imprisoned. They were being treated very harshly and unfairly. But what they have in Christ is so much better. They have a whole eternity of this festal gathering. Well, then, secondly, we need a sense of severity or maybe seriousness. 
Because he goes right from there, from talking about this festal gathering and this happy time and this acceptance that we have before God, he goes right from there back into a warning passage. And it's interesting because this warning passage sounds an awful lot like the very first one. This is now the fifth warning passage through the book of Hebrews where he's warned the people, look, you can't turn your back on God and not be judged for it. You cannot walk away from God. That just shows your unbelief. And so he's warning them again, and he uses a similar word. It's the word escape. We look back at the first warning in chapter 2. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The point that he's making is there is no other way of escape. This is the way. Jesus is the way of escape. He is the way of forgiveness. He is, as he said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. He's it. He's saying if we turn our back on this, we miss it. That's exactly the same thing that he says in chapter 12. He says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. That's the only way of escape. And so he gives this warning in there. He says you need to recognize the severity. When we get our perspective, we need to to see how important this is whether we believe in Jesus Christ, whether we follow Him closely, whether we hold to Him, or whether we turn around and walk and go our own way and live in the stubbornness of our hearts, eternity is on the line. Where we spend eternity, our salvation, our forgiveness, all of that's on the line based on whether or not we are trusting in Christ, whether we have faith in Him. Because if you have faith in Him, you're going to remain faithful and you're going to follow. If you don't follow, if you don't remain faithful, where's your faith? It's non-existent. The warnings as we've gone through Hebrews have been very severe, very strong. And the reason is because if they don't heed the warnings, they're going to miss it and prove themselves unfaithful. There is not a more serious subject matter that you deal with in your life than where you're going to spend your eternity. To miss this opportunity is severe. And that's what he wants us to recognize. Whenever we reset our perspective, that's what it involves, doesn't it? Recognizing what things are important and what things are not as important. He's saying, look, you might have lost a house. You might even be on the verge of losing your life, even though none of you have yet. You might have lost a lot of different things, but none of those is important as what you're going to lose if you turn your back on this. I don't care if you're dealing with an issue that deals with, your, with relationships, finance, health. No matter what you're dealing with in your life, there's not a decision more important than where you spend eternity, whether or not you are going to trust and follow Jesus Christ. All the rest of it's temporary and light. But not only do we need to sense the severity, we also need to sense the stability. I love this. You know, it's kind of like last Wednesday we were teaching the kids about just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the Son of Man would be lifted up. And one of the things that I told the kids is whenever God brings judgment, He also provides a way of salvation. He brought judgment on the people of Israel through the venomous snakes. And He brought a way of salvation with the serpent lifted up on the cross by which they could be healed. God is not only a God of judgment, He's a God of mercy. And that's what we see in this stability. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. And that's when Moses went up onto the mountain. And that, and when, when God gave the law, he shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yes, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. When God gave the first covenant of the law, the earth shook. And He gave a promise. 
Yet once more, I'm going to shake it again. And I'm going to shake not only the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens. I'm going to shake it all. And the things that can be shaken are going to fall. The things that cannot be shaken will remain. You know, these people were being shaken through the experiences that we've already mentioned. Your world can be shaken. My world can be shaken. My, my relationships can be shaken. My health can be shaken. My finances can be shaken. My social standing and reputation can be shaken. Just about everything we possess in this world can be shaken. Here's the question. What do you have that cannot be shaken? Jesus Christ. That's it. You see, these people were tempted to turn their back on what cannot be shaken, to try to grasp a hold of a whole bunch of things that can be shaken. They were trying to, they were tempted to turn their back on that which is eternal for that which is very temporary. And, th- and that's, that's foolish on anybody's part. Their perspective is out of whack. They're putting too much importance on the things that are temporary and not enough priority on that which is eternal. They're putting too much focus and emphasis on what can be taken away from them or what can be shaken. You know, what you have in Christ cannot be taken from you. They can put you to death. But as Jesus said, don't fear them that can put you to death. Fear him who after putting you to death can cast you into hell. That which is eternal. Don't worry so much about the temporal things. And I can't imagine what that would feel like to have your home ripped away from you. I can't imagine what it would feel like to, to have family members broken up. Somebody maybe be sent into prison myself. But you know what? As unimaginable as that is, those things are worth sacrificing for that which is eternal. For that thing that we have that cannot be taken away from you. So we have that sense at the same time that we recognize the severity of the issue. He also points out the stability. We need to sense the stability. While everything's being stripped away from us on this earth, things that can be shaken, we can have stability in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, a proper response. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, in the midst of these people losing all these things, they can be grateful. It doesn't seem like a time where you'd be grateful. But he says, this is where we need to recognize, look, there's nothing here. There's nothing here that's been lost that can't be replaced. You have something. By holding firm to Christ, you have something that cannot be shaken. And that's gratitude. You know, there is something within us that, that compels us toward that kind of a thought, isn't there? You know, when, when you suffer loss, we do have a tendency to say, well, at least this. I remember when, when we were on vacation out in Seattle and our van got stolen. And it was a discomforting sitting on the sidewalk down in a large city as it's getting toward evening with, my, with a few of my kids on a sidewalk. You know, and just starting to try to figure out what you're going to do to remedy the situation. Because I thought, I know what, I need to help my kids get some perspective on this. Because I know what this, this feels horrible. And so we started getting some perspective. And you know what, one of the first things we went to is I would rather be the one, I would rather be the person being stolen from than the person doing the stealing. Look, there's more, there's more important things than, than vans. There's more important things than laptops and cameras and, and those kinds of things. Character. And so we, we just started focusing on some of, of those things. Also the fact that, you know what, our van was stolen, those kind of things. There was anything that's stolen. It can't be replaced. It all got replaced. And we were safe and back on the road soon. And we started, it just started, made you start thinking about things that are unshakable. Look, we, we've lost some things here. We didn't lose anything. But it really, really has value. And you know what it made us? It made us grateful. In the midst of losing, we felt grateful. 
And that's what he's saying. This is the proper response. You need to be grateful that you have something that cannot be shaken. It cannot be stripped or taken away from you. And then lastly, not only gratefulness, but worship. Worship. Our gratitude, of course, is an expression of worship. But as we offer up our gratitude to God, we need to focus on God and thank Him for what we have. Thank Him for the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank Him that we have such a glorious home. We haven't seen it all yet. In fact, this whole passage is filled with kind of, a, kind of an already but not yet feel to it. Like you have this. You haven't experienced it all yet, but you have it. It's yours in Christ. We need to express our gratitude and our thanks to God as we bow before Him because without Him, all we have is things that can be shaken. I often hear this when somebody's going through a real struggle, a real hardship in life, and they say, what do people without Christ do? Because you know what? If you're without Christ, that's all you have. If you're without Christ, all you have is your life and your health and your relationships and your finances. and That's, that's all you've got. If you're an unbeliever... Every day of your life, you get closer to saying goodbye to all your treasures. But if you're a believer, every day you're one day closer to saying hello to all your treasures. You know, that's a whole different perspective, isn't it? That's our perspective.